Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for teachers, preachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Tim McNinch, and I teach Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, and I teach Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Our reading today is the psalm assigned to May 21st, the final Sunday in the Easter season. Though isn't every Sunday Resurrection Sunday? I know. It's a great day. <laughs> Tim, you're up to share some insights on Psalm 68, or at least the beginning and end of the psalm. So what do you have for us? Well, first, uh, thanks for mentioning the liturgical calendar. Anytime. Uh, yeah, of course. May 21st is indeed the final Sunday in the liturgical season of Easter, and it's also where the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus. Mm. Ascension Day is traditionally the 40th day of Easter, which happens to land on May 18th this year. So the 21st is when many churches will be marking that occasion. Uh, though I have to say, often the ascension gets lost in the shuffle between Easter and Pentecost, hmm. uh, which is celebrated as kind of like the birthday of the church with the outpouring of the Spirit, as described in Acts 2. Yeah, you're right. In fact, I was just having this conversation with um, my husband, Tim, not you, Tim, um, hmm. and, and he said that the ascension is one of those days that not only takes a backseat, but takes a really unfortunate backseat because it it carries more weight than we often give it. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of why it sort of gets lost in the shuffle, as you said? Yeah, I mean, some of it might just sort of be uh, holy day fatigue, you might say. There's just so much going on at this time of the year, not to mention all of our secular celebrations that surround springtime, school year completion, graduation, that kind of thing. But I also think that Jesus's ascension is just poorly understood theologically by many of us. It's sort of the uh, anticlimax of the gospel story, right? Uh, there's that high drama of the passion narrative and then the astonishing revelation of Jesus' resurrection and his appearances. And then he hops on a cloudy escalator and whoop, he's gone. <laughs> it's, and it's just like, just as we got Jesus back, he's gone again. And many Christians don't really know what to make of that part of our story. It's like divine peekaboo. Where yeah. did he go? There yeah, he is. Exactly. <laughs> So do the do the lectionary texts help at all with this issue? I think they actually can, and especially the psalm reading this week. It's because the psalms are amazing. <laughs> Says the psalms scholar. Yeah, totally yes, unbiased. Yes. So the first reading given by the lectionary this week is the retelling of Jesus' ascension as it's presented in Acts 1, 6-14 which is a reprisal of the conclusion to Luke's gospel at the end of the 24th chapter. And remember, since we're still technically in Easter, the first reading in the lectionary is from Acts. Mm. Then the second reading and the gospel reading are both reflections on the quote-unquote glorification of Jesus, Mm. which is kind of speaking of the whole death, resurrection, ascension package. So the only Old Testament material we get this week is from Psalm 68, a couple excerpts with some interesting ascensionish imagery. Ooh, okay. You've piqued my interest. So, <laughs> so tell us more, but first of all, set it up. You know, which parts of the psalm do we actually get? Right. The lectionary assigns verses 1 to 10 and then jumps to 32 to 35. This is mm. the beginning and the ending of the psalm. Mm. And you know, this is a particularly long psalm at 35 verses, right? Hmm. So, I don't know. I think we can maybe allow the abridgment in this case. Bite your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fine. All right. 
But if if uh, you out there are including some of this in your sermon, it will serve you well to read and consider the whole poem in your study and your preparation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a long and complex poem with many intersecting themes. Mm. Because of that, commenters often have trouble identifying a, a, a genre or a single form that this poem takes. Mm. And some have suggested that it might even be kind of an edited pastiche of many sort of source psalms, kind of kind of a mashup version together. Uh, one one commenter, I can't remember who, actually thought maybe this is like a uh, the first line of a whole bunch of <laughs> poems all just thrown together like a compilation CD. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, for for those of you out there, a CD is yeah. a, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like a streaming oh, service, <laughs> but on a piece of plastic. <laughs> However we got this psalm, I think the unifying thread is its image of God as a glorious victor mm-hmm. traveling in procession from several different starting points, as it turns out, but arriving at the temple in Jerusalem. We get this processional language most explicitly in verses 17 to 18 and 24 to 27, which are not in the lectionary excerpt, but hey, look them up. (laughs) So I think this psalm envisions some kind of liturgy, whether occasional or annual, who knows, but some sort of liturgy in which God was paraded into the temple and (laughs) ceremonially enthroned in order to signify God's beneficent residence among the people. God was with them. Hmm. I think that imagery in particular is, you know, is really powerful. I, so I've, I, you know, I've read about the, the liturgical procession. I'm not sure exactly how I think about it, but I do think that image of God being enthroned among the people is so central to the book of Psalms that it makes sense that it's so central to, to this Psalm itself. So I get that, but where are you going with the ascension-ish imagery? Where do you see that? <laughs> well, unsurprisingly, that imagery is found in the excerpts that are given by the lectionary. Oh, what a concept. <laughs> Particularly, we'll want to take a look at verse four. Uh, sing to God, sing praises to God's name, lift up a song to the one who rides upon the clouds, mm. as the NRSV puts it. There's that image of the divine one riding the clouds, just as Acts 1-9 pictures Jesus sort of levitating up and riding the clouds into the heavenly realm. Yeah, absolutely. I see the connection there. Do, how, do you, how do you play with that? Uh, because, right, this is a pre-Christian text, so obviously they weren't thinking ascension as they wrote it. But how, do you, how might you guide preachers to make that connection? Yeah, to get at that, I think we actually need need to take a peek at the Hebrew that's mm-hmm. going on here. And um, by the way, if you're following along out there, note that the Hebrew versification here is one verse ahead because mm-hmm. it counts the superscription as verse one. So verse four, which I want to look at in the NRSV, is verse five in the Hebrew and in the JPS translation, if you happen to be using that one. Mm-hmm. It reads, Shiru l'Elohim, sing to God. Zamru Shmo, make music to God's name. Solu, which is sort of like uh, lift up or raise up, some sort of phrase. La Rochev Ba'aravot, and that's the phrase, to the rider upon the Aravot. And the Hebrew word there, Aravot, is actually kind of ambiguous. It's a weird word. It's not the word I think of when I think of clouds. 
this could be an image of uh, kind of traveling through the Arava, which would be like the desert. Mm-hmm. And that would fit with some of the wilderness imagery in the poem. Um, that's one possibility. Or this could be um, from the same root, kind of riding upon Erev, the evening or the sunset. So mm-hmm. kind of a solar imagery for God here. That's actually how the Septuagint translates it as riding on the evening, on the sunset. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, especially because this is a hapax legomenon, right? This is the only time it occurs in the Bible. Yes. Given that, most translators go with clouds here mm. by emending or correcting perhaps the text from this word aravot to uh, almost identical word arafot, mm. which is a kind of fancy poetic term for clouds. Mm-hmm. What's striking about this unusual, uncommon phrase, rider on the aravot or arafot, is that it's likely borrowed from a praise of the Canaanite deity Baal, mm-hmm. Baal, who was understood to be a storm weather sky god, right? <laughs> and in fact, we have surviving literature from a Bronze Age site, Ugarit, north of Israel, that refers to Baal with this exact phrase, the one who rides upon the clouds, the, the Arafot. Yeah, this is really fascinating. I, it, I'm Especially because... In later on in Psalm in verse seven, it talks about uh, God going out with people when they marched through the wilderness. You know, kind of referencing back to the wilderness narrative. But mm-hmm. in that, God didn't ride the clouds. God was in the cloud. The cloud was the the signification, the presence of God. So it's funny that there are these multiple, like you said, this compilation. There's these multiple strands throughout the Bible that are running through this text itself. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm exactly. And so I think what's going on here in this psalm, the poet is celebrating Israel's God as a God of the heavens, a God Mm -hmm. of the skies, borrowing this visual language that would have resonated with an ancient audience. As God processes to Jerusalem through the wilderness, God rides upon the clouds, and all along the way, God's thunder is shaking the land, that's verses 7 to 8, God's sending down rain, that's verse 9. And just like the sun in the sky, another sort of divinized heavenly image, God enlightens the path of the freed prisoners while Mm. scorching the land of the rebellious. That's verse Mm. 6. And then when we get to the end of the psalm in verses 32 to 35, the poet again celebrates God as a God of the skies. Mm. It says, O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens, listen, God sends out the divine voice, God's mighty voice. That would be the thunder. Mm. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God in God's sanctuary, the God of Israel, who gives power and strength to God's people. And so here the poet is intertwining these images of God in the heavens and God in the temple, which is probably, again, an indication that this might have been used in some sort of liturgical procession of God into the temple Hmm. as a kind of dramatized reenactment of God's ride upon the clouds of the sky as the ruler of the cosmos. Hmm. In other words, the God who lives among them is the powerful God of all creation who rules the heavens. Hmm. I think it's a sweet poem. It really is. I got to say, like, I liked Psalm 68 to start with, but you're making it grow even more on me. So I see the connection with the sky and the ascension, but do you see more of a a deeper connection to the ascension rather than just kind of this common sky theme? 
Yeah, I think there's a way to uh, bring these images together. And the helpful thing to remember, for, at least for me, is that the depiction of Jesus's ascension in the Gospels and in Acts is not like a simple play-by-play -play of what happened. However Jesus's ascension happened in real life, what we have is a literary representation of it, mm. a, a literary interpretation of it, drawing upon imagery that carries meaning for the author and their community. So the image of Jesus transcending the human plane and riding upon the clouds for the original hearers and readers of Acts 1 would almost certainly have reverberated as an echo of scriptures from their Bible, mm. especially Daniel 7, probably, with its image of the Son of Man, the human one, coming on the clouds, but also other texts that share that imagery, like our dear Psalm 68. <laughs> By describing the ascension in that way, the author of Acts was speaking a particular language and drawing a particular interpretation of the event. Mm. And here's the critical thing. This is my preaching angle, okay? For the author of Acts, Jesus's ascension was not an anticlimax to his mm. resurrection not a letdown, not in the first place a disappearance of Jesus. It wasn't even exactly a going away at all. Mm. The ascension was a coming, a mm. showing up. It wasn't an ending. It was an enthronement. Mm. Not the absence, but a, but a transition to a new mode of presence for Jesus. Mm. And that's why I think the author draws upon this imagery of God, the ruler of the cosmos, processing upon the clouds to God's throne of governance in the Holy Temple. The author of Acts pictures the ascension of Jesus as the beginning of his coming in power. Mm, nice. And so Pentecost, 10 days later, is not necessarily the great beginning <laughs> that it's often cracked up to be, right? <laughs> Pentecost is just the natural unfolding of Jesus's ascension, mm. a kind of tangible experience of Jesus enthroned with God and ushering in God's goodwill on earth as it already is done in the heavens. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. The idea that Pentecost is an experience of Jesus's enthronement. So, so dear preachers out there, as you celebrate the ascension of Jesus, don't make it about an ending. It's a glorious beginning. Mm. And for us, I think it represents the, the overlapping of this world in its broken state with its ultimate eschatological reality, hmm. which is why we experience both pain and glory in this life, both suffering and relief, oppression and justice together, trauma and hope. The ascension of Jesus is a claim to a future that's already breaking into the present. And it's a basis for our hope that God's good rule can actually meet us in the here and now in our lives and in our service in our communities today, and not just in some far off age to come. Mm. So that's my little sermon, sermon done. <laughs> I loved it. I love that sermon. I, I just, I really am kind of enthralled with this idea of the going away of Jesus is actually the, um, the advent of Jesus or the the coming, the presence, but in a new way. And I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful message for folks who may often feel like God is not visibly present in a way that you can see and touch like you can other people. But this concept that, well, that's because Jesus is enthroned and this is what it looks like for Jesus to be enthroned. It's much more um, organic on the ground. Mm. Yeah, that's really mm. neat. 
Well, folks, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. First Reading is produced by Tim and me, along with Rosie Candethel and Paul Asak. You can find a searchable repository of all of our back episodes at firstreadingpodcast.com. But at our website, you can also learn more about our hosts and guests. Browse our snazzy merch if you'd like and donate to support the podcast. Drop us a line at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or find us in the comments on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.